Hello and welcome to the Food Climate Podcast. I'm Guillaume, your host, and each week, I'm fortunate to share with you stories from climate tech founders, investors, and corporations sharing their unique insights into this fast-moving industry. Eventually, like me, you will learn, discover, and get inspired by those unique men and women who are contributing to the fight against climate change, and I hope it will help you to take a step in this formidable movement. So before we start, I just want to share a few words about us as this podcast is just the tip of the iceberg of what we do at Startup Basecamp to support climate tech movement. Our mission is to accelerate capital deployment towards climate tech founders, allowing them to focus on scaling their solutions. How do we do that? Every day, we help founders access to resources and connections and gain the visibility they need to expand their growth. We do this in a number of ways with a membership platform, a Slack group with a growing number of founders, investors, and experts from around the world. And recently, we went one step further with a matching services to connect founders with top climate tech investors. Keep in mind that we are able to do all of this thanks to the support of our listeners and our members. Please like and subscribe share one episode with a friend, join a community, and if you haven't already done so, make a small donation to support our work. It really means the world to us. And now, enjoy the show! Hi everyone, in this new episode of Founder Series, I have an insightful discussion with Martin Skickton, co-founder and CEO of Craftblock which he describes as a multifunctional high-temperature energy storage system with the mission to decarbonize various industries. Having studied chemistry and completed a PhD in nanotechnology, Martin went on to develop materials as part of a research institute before falling into selling these types of products. Artblock started out as a hobby in 2008, which he approached in a very scientific way spending three years doing extensive literature and market research before building the business proposition and launching it. Martin is also an avid reader and lover of nature, tail runs and deep discussions with family and friends about theories he has read about and your ideas. Historically, energy storage is not discussed with electricity or battery storage in mind. However, less so about heat, hydro, and sunlight. In this episode, we discuss different types of energy storage, new technologies, and how if we want to really move away from fossil fuels for energy production, we need to ensure energy storage can be sustained through the nighttime hours and when the sun isn't shining or the wind isn't blowing in order to sustain lifestyles, industry, and wealth for the future. During the second part of the show, Martin shares his experience of his fundraising journey for a large-scale hardware company and some tips he wishes he knew beforehand. He also shares his advice for reaching a healthy work-life balance as a busy founder. 
Martin, welcome to the show. Hi, Martin. Welcome to the Tech for Climate podcast. I'm super happy to have you here with us today on the show. I believe it's going to be a great opportunity to hear your story and learn more about your exciting adventure with Craftblot, which is a multifunctional energy storage for heat and power and many, many things more. So we're super excited to have you here and uh, welcome to the show. Nothing more to explain to you. Thanks for being me. Uh, sorry, thanks for having me. <laughs> thanks for being here. You're welcome. So, um, before we start, that's a tradition on the show. Uh, could you give us a 30-second introduction about Craftblock? Yeah, as you already said, Craftblock, uh, we call ourselves a multifunctional high-temperature energy storage system. Very complex thing, but at the end, it's quite simple. What we want to do with our thermal energy storage system is to decarbonize various industries uh, in order to help in the uh, fight against climate change. Um, that's pretty simple. What we do, we store thermal energy. So it could be waste heat uh, from flare gases, steel glass industry. But we also could use electricity to convert it to heat, ideally green electricity, and then supply the suppliers with process heat to decarbonize in one single step. So let's start from the top. I was on mute to make sure there's no background noise here. So uh, <laughs> can you tell us a bit more about uh, your personal story and, uh, and background? I mean, on the show, we like, uh, you know, humans more than the uh, LinkedIn resume. Uh, so what are you passionate about? I mean, what do you love to do besides uh, building craft blog? I mean, what makes you feel inspired or like your best self? As I always ask, who's Martin? <laughs> Yeah, um, in general, Martin is a quite curious guy, right? Uh, I, I love to, to learn about a lot of things. Uh, that's why I also love quite old literature, science literature from the 17th and 18th century, because uh, those guys knew already a lot of things we already forgot today, but uh, also could use or utilize today. Um, I try to, to figure out what is the world about, right? What, the, what are the backgrounds? What are the ideas behind? Uh, and that is m my main driver beneath that. I usually can think quite a lot, uh, which I'm, I'm doing day by day, but I can do it very well doing sports, right? Going to the, to the nature, having a walk around, having a hiking, uh, doing trail runs, uh, things like this, because this always opens my mind uh, and, and makes me think in a quite creative way. Um, reading, of course, basically, I studied chemistry, took a PhD in nanotechnology, so I had to read a lot in my life and even keep on reading even books today, although they are fantastic ebooks and podcasts, but somehow the paper in, in, in my hands, I don't know, might remind me to my childhood or to my youth, what else it is. It's just a special feeling to have paper in the hands and read through those papers, do my marks in there, um, come, come up with new ideas, new minds. And especially what, what is very like me or it's me is discussing those ideas with different peoples. So really, could be uh, our secretary, could be my wife, could be my children, could be just friends uh, and have very, very controversial discussions about everything. So um, I think I'm a quite mind-wide or mind-orientated guy, um, and that's basically most of my life. So tell us a bit more about your, uh, you know, previous work and life experience before the launch of uh, of Craftblock. I mean, what did you learn along that uh, that journey that, uh, in a way, gave you an edge to start the, the company? Maybe you have like one or two pieces of like, you know, experience that you could define as like really valuable for uh, the launch of Craftblock. Yeah, 
Um, I think basically it's just, as I said, curiosity is one thing to think about new ideas, new approaches, uh, which was always a part of my work, right? I studied, as I said, I studied chemistry most of my life. I worked in developing different materials, especially ceramic-like materials. I uh, also headed uh, a research group of 40 researchers at the research institute to discover even more new things, uh, which ended up in the industry uh, doing sales for those types of products. So I was, was in combination of R&D and sales, uh, direct contact with the customers to experience what are they looking for, what could be the next step, what could be the next stage. Um, but what's interesting with CraftBlock, there was not a direct link to it. It was more an underconscious thing because I have worked in, in, uh, for sales in steel, ceramics industry, also a bit in, into the glass industry. So I've seen a lot of energy waste over there, just heat going out of the chimney into the atmosphere. But I never thought about this before. Uh, this came into my mind in a much, much later stage. But maybe it was just uh, in, in, my, in my background, um, swiveling around and um, creating an idea in the future. So in all of that uh, that journey and you mentioned this uh, this experience in more like the conventional um, you know industry and probably the the, the more co2 emitting uh, industry yeah. you know uh, being at the opposite uh, of the of the spectrum here with uh, with craft block so what have been this you know your own personal i would say driver to jump into this more climate clean tech uh, industry with with craftbook any specific aha moment uh, that you would recall or define as such or maybe a succession of them yes uh, there, there was um but it's more complex i think craftblock is quite special how it uh, how it came up with the idea um, I worked on this idea already in, I think, 2008 it was, when I saw a TV report about a concrete heat storage. I found it pretty interesting, you know, cheap material cast in every shape, it stores heat, it's available worldwide. But they said they only can store up to 500 degrees C and it would be a high temperature energy storage system. I was working in the steel industry at this time and this is kind of warm up temperature, it's not high temperature. And at that point, it was just a kind of scientific challenge how to figure out how to improve concrete to have a broader temperature range, a better uh, application spectrum uh, for various applications. But there was not a concrete idea to build a company uh, at this point. So it took me like three years in a typical scientific approach. What is the problem? Literature research, uh, trying to figure out uh, how we could approach it. It was just a, yeah, it's a hobby uh, at the beginning. But when I made up my mind how a system could look like. I started looking to the markets where thermal energy storage used at that point in time, where could they be used in future. And so I dig more and more into this topic and uh, it, it got very well aware that um, in terms of energy demand, roughly 50% of the energy demand worldwide is heat demand. It's not electricity or fuels, it's heat demand. And then uh, was a little bit like the aha moment. Hey guy, you have seen it in the steel industry. You have seen it in ceramics industry. How many energy is wasted over there? Uh, what about all the fossil fuels that are burned? They are causing the emissions. And that was a little bit like, 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 how to say, like a purpose-driven uh, idea moment, uh, the wiki moment at this, uh, at this point in time. Thank you for uh, unveiling a little bit uh, already this like uh, beginning of the, the, the story of uh, of craft blog. So before we uh, we go into detail about uh, about craft blog in itself, uh, during this um, you know the pre-recording call, we said that we would like to cover a bit like and understand the, the overall context that you are uh, surfing on and to put things back into uh, to perspective. Maybe uh, I'd like to get your uh, your understanding of the. Uh, 
energy storage problem and opportunities today. Why storage is key for the, the energy transition at, uh, at large? Uh, maybe to start off, uh, if you could share with, uh, with us some data points regarding uh, the needs of energy storage worldwide today, uh, eventually the projection uh, of the demand uh, in the future. And why are we uh, in terms of uh, deployment to, to fill the gap uh, in itself? <laughs> And then we'll yeah, go exactly. one step deeper in, them, uh, in terms of like the current technology and then the upcoming one that you, uh, that you see. So we are really like staging, staging the, the whole context at, uh, at first. Mm -hmm. um, energy storage, that's a quite interesting topic because um, let's say till two or three years ago, most people were thinking about electricity storage, battery storage, if they talk about energy storage. They are not talking about heat or heat storage systems or similar systems to this. Um, but this is really a huge extension uh, of this whole market. In terms of electricity, I think it's quite well explainable. I think we do have something like, uh, I don't know, 50 gigawatt hours uh, installed worldwide at the moment uh, and increasing at the moment. There are a lot of large scaled uh, lithium batteries being built worldwide in order for crit, uh, crit services. Um, and things for this, we do have a couple of um, pumped hydro storages uh, in, in the Alps, in, in Norway, in Sweden, a couple of countries that can afford this and have enough space um, to do it. But if we want to really move away from fossil fuels for the energy production, if we want to move to the renewables, I think there is no other chance than using um, uh, energy storage because Simply spoken, everybody heard about it. The sun is shining as long as the sun is shining and the wind is blowing if the wind blows. But there are a lot of times where there is no wind and there is no sun shining. So somehow you have to prolong the energy life also into the night hours, also into the low wind hours in order to keep at the end uh, our private lives up, in order to keep industry running, in order to create also wealth uh, for the future. And that's why we need energy storage, generally speaking, for different applications. So to go one step further, and thanks for uh, already unveiling a, a little bit again, like, I mean, uh, let's cover the existing landscape. If you could share with, uh, with the audience, like, I mean, the main different categories of energy storage, and you mentioned like, uh, you know, the chemical one, uh, the, uh, the water system that can, you know, for instance, in the Alps, where you can uh, make them drop. I mean, but what is used at the industri industrial level today? I mean, um, can you yeah. maybe tell us a bit more about the different type of technologies that you, you see and eventually like the, the quantity of storage that uh, they represent, if you have any data there, uh, and maybe their advantage and, and limitation for the, the main ones? Yeah, uh, so I think the, the, the eldest storage we do have is the kind of pumped hydro storage or water storage, let's say water reservoir storage at the end, um, because it was always there, there was always a chance to utilize it. We um, in, in ancient times, we always used hydropower just because of the, the, the decrease of, um, of, of the water angle at the end. So this is the oldest one. I think that's the most spread one for electricity storage robot. Actually, I cannot figure how, how the quantity is, but that's the, that's the largest quantity. And now it's followed up quite good by lithium battery storages. I mean, a couple of years ago, the Tesla storage in Adelaide with 100 megawatt hours, the largest one. Meanwhile, we do also have 100 megawatt hour or 200 megawatt hour storage capacity in Germany and even increasing with the crit boosters. Uh, the same for, for other locations. East Coast, the US is building uh, storages uh, very, very fast, electrical storage very, very fast. So um, these are both, let's say, the original types of electricity storage. We had lead batteries in, in the past, could also be there today, but I think 
uh, lithium batteries are much more efficient, uh, much more compact. Uh, okay, we can discuss about environmental impacts, um, but that's another, uh, another topic. Um, it's worse for both of them at the moment, but hopefully this will change in future. Um, and then within the last 10 years, we have a couple of newer approaches, right? For electricity, we also do have redox flow batteries. We also do have um, a kind of molten salt battery or uh, how's it called? Um, thermal battery in thing, not in terms of thermal energy storage, but in terms of electricity storages and a couple of other technologies approaching. Uh, we do have this intermediate between um, electrical storage and thermal energy storage, for example, what's offered by Malta X storing um, electricity in terms of thermal energy, but using a special turbine system to, to re regenerate electricity with a very good efficiency compared to typical steam turbine. So it's somewhere in between. And there we are already on the transition for thermal energy storages. Um, Industrial-wise, the molten salt storage is the eldest one. Uh, it already was built in 1980s uh, of last century in California with the first concentrated solar power plant. And exactly in this industry, those types of storages grew um, at the moment. But there is still roughly 30-40% uh, of all CSP plants worldwide without any storage. So they are just producing energy during 8-10 hours every day, but not over the night hours. So a bit lag, so they try to refurbish it uh, with thermal energy storages. Uh, for private sector, I mean, the best known is uh, the hot water storage. A lot of people do have it uh, in, in their cellar somewhere hidden. Uh, and that's also the issue with thermal energy storage. Usually they are hidden because they are not very very design-like systems, but you put it somewhere in, in your cellar and forget about it, um, uh, except there is some issue with it, and then you think about it. Um, and this one in larger scale you'll find is uh, storages for district heating, like seasonal storages to recover the energy over the summer times and distribute it over the winter times to the households. These are the three, let's say, the main categories um, that we see or that I would see. Um, a lot of new technologies are coming up at the moment. We are talking a lot about hydrogen, really perfect to see it as a kind of seasonal storage, long-term storage, uh, even to replace gas. Methanization uh, will be the next step through this with a higher efficiency, um, which all has its pro and its cons, right? So you can produce hydrogen, you put it into some curve and you can store it for five years, uh, perfect. If you burn hydrogen, again, you have a lot of energy losses beneath the, the generation of hydrogen, but you have energy losses by burning it. So it might not be the best solution for everything. And I think that's what's making the world quite complicated at the moment, that there is no, there is one storage solution for all application. There are a lot of niche solutions for different applications that it's needed worldwide. So looking at uh, and double clicking a little bit on those uh, innovation um, that you, you started to share with us, like it, it sounds that uh, as we are, you know, still in this emerging, you know, uh, I would say market in terms of like new solution and new technologies. And, and you can hear like often this uh, new type of batteries or anode cathodes like really will change the, the way or you, uh, or you store energy. And some people are using also like hemp and like uh, it can be sand and can be like so many different innovation. But which one, according to you, besides uh, what uh, you guys do with uh, with Craft Blocked, and we'll go uh, a, a bit deeper just after this, but which one is like the most realistic today in terms of like, uh, or I would say ready to scale, uh, you know, and in which timeline uh, one or two of those solutions will 
in a way uh, take over uh, a large portion of the market and and at the end of the day support this uh, decarbonization effort that uh, we are all uh, working on yeah um i i think we have to do a split in in the different storage systems i mean um, the, 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 the pumped hydro storage is that already scale quite old technology, but there's just limited space worldwide where you can put pumped hydro storages in, in a quite smart way. Um, we do have, uh, let's say, gravity based storages. Uh, we all know from, um, uh, from, from different players in the market that are ready to scale uh, quite simple technology at the end. A lot of proven components. Uh, the whole system might be quite new. Uh, but it's just adding one plus one is two in some uh, which is the same for those gravity based stories so easy to scale it uh, even at the moment for lithium batteries for example i think technology is uh, quite proven in the market especially if you think about electrification of cars uh, where where the um, environment is a little bit more harsh than having a stationary storage somewhere put in in um, in the grid, uh, which does not move which does not have any vibration frequencies and things like that so easier to handle can also be scared, uh, scaled, but now it's depending on, um, well, on on the costs, which is one fact for those system. We do have the Redox Flow batteries. I think the first large 100 megawatt hour, 200 megawatt hour systems are under execution at the moment, which is a great step, uh, first basis for scaling. But if you think about capacity storage, especially for grid purposes, it's just too small. But uh, if they modularize it and scale just the modules, then it's also kind of easy scaling. Um, we see hydrogen, of course. There are a lot of more electrolyzers coming, uh, which is pretty good. Um, what we do not see that much is really hydrogen storages or hydrogen crits to distribute the hydrogen based from a central storage to two different solutions. I think this will take quite, quite its time, like five to ten years, till it's fully established in the market. Uh, for um, off-grid applications or uh, island applications, uh, that's also a good option uh, to step it, uh, to use it, especially if you also utilize the hydrogen as a raw material for your production itself. So you have a combination between energy storage and raw materials. I think this is also pretty much, especially in the island stage, uh, uh, based to scale. Um, then if you take a look to uh, thermal energy storages, molten salt storages, as I said, quite old. They are already in, in commercial scale available, but not suitable for all of the applications. They're limited from the temperature range, um, uh, also from uh, the footprint, which is very important for a lot of industries. And then we are at storages like ours or the one that the sand storage you mentioned or broken rock storage or storage based on concrete, which all worldwide is we see are just now taking the first steps in scaling. So we see applications mm -hmm. like 500 megawatt, uh, 500, uh, 0.5 megawatt hours, 4 megawatt hours, 10 megawatt hours. We are working on a 150 megawatt hour system at the moment. Um, but I think basically the approach from those players is, um, let's say, quite settled and quite proven. So building modules, and then you just think about how often do you multiply this module in order to scale it. Um, the biggest obstacle at the end is the acceptance by the customer, right? So what, what we mm -hmm. see, there are a lot of technologies um, at, at their starting points uh, ready to scale, but a lot of customers asking questions like, is it already in under operation for 10 years, for 15 years? We need the reliability, we need the security that it works. It's a little bit like the mindset topic.
Mm-hmm. I think this is a good segue for my, uh, my next question. I mean, now that you understand a bit better the, uh, the problems, the limitation, as well as, you know, some, you know, potential alternatives here and, and, and solutions. So to get a more complete understanding of the, of the context, if you could tell us a little bit about like those actors, like, I mean, in the energy uh, storage uh, market, we understand it's very fragmented and completely distributed, but you see like few of them are that the emerging large players i mean we know that this uh, i mean the tesla of the of the world for sure but i mean um what are the maybe that correlated to that is like what are the limitation or, or the small barrier uh for upcoming technology and new startups to um you know penetrate this market i mean how, how is the market organized there um yeah well also not not that simply organized unfortunately uh, there are a lot of players a lot of uni- uh, utilities a lot of corporates in the market thinking about them and generally about um, energy storage solutions Um, meanwhile i think they are quite close at the end of their benchmarking uh, phase which means they took into account different types of storages to look on different customers from their side to see what is the best storage application for which kind of customer and that's the fragmented um, devices uh, as you already also spoke about and that makes the system quite complex. But I, I would assume there's another one or two years until they are ready to go and ready to, to, to deploy uh, storage installations in various uh, systems. What we definitely see is a kind of, uh, how to say, an external driver for this whole topic uh, to get um, a good traction with energy storage. That's the final customer, right? Um, I mean, I'm, I'm not the youngest generation. Um, but I also think in terms of sustainability, we want to have uh, sustainable products, decarbonized products, things like that. But our youth, uh, that's a major driver. And if the youth says, uh, for example, I don't want to eat any snacks anymore, which, are produ- which used to produce uh, carbon dioxide because it's an issue for me in terms of climate change, then the industry does have to react. And so we have a driver from the end consumer towards the industry, towards the utilities, towards the corporates to say, I. I do not sell my products anymore in the future if I do not change anything. So let's think about how can I change my system today? What is the technology? And then they are start thinking about, let's try those technologies which are not fully proven in the market because they are just at their very beginnings um, of their developments. And that's where we are today. Mm-hmm. So to close this uh, this section, uh, if you could tell us a bit about the, the current uh, regulatory framework. I mean, what are the, the regulations currently in place? Uh, or the missing ones that uh, could be blocking or slowing down to, to reach this, I would say, theoretical like uh, goal of uh, zero energy loss uh, and 100% storage capacities. Um, I mean, do you see any difference also between the EU, the US, Canada and the, and the rest of the, the world? Uh, yes, uh, between EU, EU, US, Canada, definitely also inside the EU, it's it's quite different. If I see the regulatory framework of Germany compared to the Netherlands, for example, it's quite different. Also, it should be one at least or covered by one overarching um, framework uh, from the EU. And so it's different in, in many countries. Also the same for the energy generation costs, right? I can buy electricity in the US from PV for two cent or three cent per kilowatt hour could be the same in Germany, but we do have grid fees, we do have taxes and things like that on top of it. So that you end up with 26 euro cent per kilowatt hour of energy. Um, th- th- this is one of the levers you have to say for the state, okay, we do not uh, charge that much 
taxes on it. We do not charge that much crit fees on it to make electricity more attractive and to electrify more and more in the future. Um, there could be another driver which we only see in some countries uh, like like in in, Den in Denmark, in Finland, in Sweden. Also, the US is starting with the um, with their new system, or in Netherlands, would say fossil burners like gas burners, oil, coal burners are not allowed anymore from 2025, 2030, 24, uh, five on worlds into the future. So they are forcing everybody, private homes, but also industry to think about alternatives. And is, uh, that's, that's what we can see today. If they want to um, increase their production capacity, they already have to introduce alternative systems today which is one of the main drivers. And um, I think that's pretty necessary because industry usually thinks in terms of margin, in terms of uh, benefits, in terms of good economics, but um, they have to understand that they have to invest in CapEx today to save OPEX tomorrow. It means on one hand, they have to invest more today, which is bad for their balance sheet. But on the other hand, uh, there will be a better impact, a better future uh, tomorrow for them. And they are on their way in doing this. And states, regulatory um, departments can enforce this thinking by saying, okay, stop here, no way to go over this line. Uh, you have to think about the change. Thank you so much for uh, all of those uh, super valuable insights on the uh, on the ecosystem in itself and uh, this macro uh, macro view as well. So let's go deeper into the into craft block. You already uncovered a bit, but uh, we love to hear a little bit like the, the story behind it and which gap did you identify initially? And you mentioned that based on your previous experience as well, that led to the, the current version of, of Craftblock. I mean, as I always ask, like, why did Craftblock uh, craft have to exist? Yeah. Okay, um, where, where did we come from? I already mentioned it. It was a kind of, of scientific challenge how to improve a concrete heat storage because I thought heat storages or thermal energy storages are pretty well needed, especially for concentrated solar power, also for, for district heating systems, things like that. At that uh, in, in, in that times, I didn't think about industry very well, uh, which was coming to the mind later when I did the market research about uh, storage systems itself. Um, we started with Craftblock in 2014, quite a long while ago. Um, but at the end, it was just with the idea, right? There was no fully developed storage material. There was no storage system. There was no uh, contract with a potential customer. A lot of talks with potential customers, of course, um, but uh, nothing ready to go. So we fully developed the whole system from the storage material till it is as for today um, by ourselves over this, uh, over this time. Um, and it's hardware, it's massive hardware, it's a kind of mini power plant uh, that was developed over there and it takes its time. So I would like to have it in four years, but it took eight years, which is still two years uh, faster than we expected it to be. So uh, quite on a good track. Um, the main purpose at the beginning was to say, let's introduce this type of storage to concentrated solar power industry, because it's it's pretty well known that the, especially the, concent uh, the solar towers can produce temperatures of over 1000 degrees C, which would be perfect also for industrial applications. Um, but unfortunately, it's shown out that most of those towers are operated with molten salt, which is limited to a temperature. So and there are molten salt storage is already installed, so there was no really chance to, to introduce a new type of storage, maybe for future um, purposes, for future applications, but not 2014. So we um, did a kind of 
reorientation. It's not fully true because we already had in mind waste heat recycling at that point, but not a focus mm -hmm. on this. So we dig more into established industries, energy intensive industries like steel, like glass, like ceramics industry, uh, cement industry, petrochemical industry. Um, why for those industry and why industry in general? That was a very concrete decision for us because we said if we can decarbonize just one site, uh, we will have a huge impact. We need a couple of thousand private homes to decarbonize in the same way, having the same effect in, than in one industrial site. That's why we focused on industries mm -hmm. from the very beginning. Um, and the high temperature range just and there comes in uh, to the mind my experience my previous experience before uh, selling products to those industries because I have seen a lot of energy waste over there and if you think about let's say a modern a furnace a modern kiln uh, uses 50% of the energy for example for uh, for your mug um, itself and the rest of the energy is waste energy going through the chimney or through the exhaust system itself then there is a big potential uh, to recover this energy, reutilize the energy. It means on one hand you save emissions, on the other hand you save um, primary energies, which both fits to the targets. We do have massive decarbonization of industries. Um, and that's why we first took a look uh, to the steel industry and petrochemical industry. I think it's quite obvious. If you pass by a steel plant, you see this wonderful flame burning into the atmosphere in a lot of steel plants. Um, this is the flare gas stack. Uh, which is just flaring the, the produced coke oven or blast furnace gas from the steel production itself. They do not store it, they cannot store it in these massive amounts. They flare it. But in a small steel plant, these are already 300 gigawatt hours every year. And 300 gigawatt hours is enough to supply 16, 20,000 private homes the whole year long with thermal energy. And now we have a little bit of a relation on seeing this wonderful small torch, which is in reality 50, 60 meters in height. Uh, and what the energy content is. And so for us, it was obvious to say, okay, let's start in steel industry. Let's mm -hmm. take a look to all the other industries that are operated furnaces, kilns, oven, because it's always the same principle, part of the energy in the product, the rest of the energy is waste energy. And that's where we started basically, waste heat recovery for different industries. Uh, and we dig very deep into this ecosystem of different industries. Um, yeah, that's what we did more or less the first four or five years uh, of our life in order to fully develop our product for the customer's needs, right? We had a vision yeah. of the product, what it should be. Um, we are still not there where we want to be, uh, still further developing, but we already now have a product which is perfectly fine for most of the, of the applications we do have in mind. Um, on this journey, we also saw more and more electrification of the system. So we talked about electric arc furnaces in steel industry, electric arc furnaces in ceramics industry, which uh, operates in a different way. Um, but there's elect it's electrification of heat, right? And that's why it comes into the mind very fast. How can we electrify heat? How can we take this heat into our storage? How can we utilize it for the customer? So at the end, we do have one thermal storage with two different applications. One is waste heat recycling, the other one mm -hmm. is electrification or net zero heat, how we call it today. Um, and now two more assumptions. Our basic assumption was to say we want to have a modular system, a fully modular system, in order to be able to scale quite fast, in order to be able to um, combine our storages as it's the best way for the customer 
So not having, let's say, a special construction, a special engineering for each customer, mm -hmm. but the basic set of, let's say, building blocks, how to build a large scale storage based on the same modules you would use for a small scale storage. That was one assumption and that worked out pretty good. Um, the other one was to say, should we integrate any components into our storage device or should we create a charging device and a discharging device to operate the storage? And we decided for the last, um, the last point, uh, just why? Because most of the equipment you need to charge the storage and discharge the storage is out of the shelf equipment. You get it in the market. Mm. There are tons of references in the market. You only have to do a kind of smart engineering to bring everything together to, a, to an energy system. The second reason is if I do not integrate any component into my storage, um, I do not have to take care about the component itself. So what do I mean? If I want to produce steam based on stored heat and I integrate a steam generator into my storage, my storage temperature will also always be limited to the type of steam generator. Means if I produce 200 degrees steam, steam, I could not charge my storage at 1000 degrees C because I would have a lot of issues with this component inside because it's not layouted for those temperatures. Uh, that's one of the reasons. The other reason is, as I said, scaling. Now I can take my modules as building block and build a one gigawatt hour storage based on the same modules as I do it for four megawatt hour storage, which is not possible if I integrate components because then I have to think about how do I combine those components, how do I scale those components as well. Um, means with those basic assumptions, we uh, already did a quite good job and that's, uh, that's really appreciated also from our customers. Mm -hmm. So I think it's a good, uh, good segue to move on more on the product side. I mean, if you could walk us through the, the, the process, I mean, how does it work? How much energy can you, can you store in each module and how large can you go? I mean, how many modules in, th in theory you could uh, aggregate to, uh, together? I mean, you choose like heat as a storage, like, I mean, means, and then from that heat, you can, uh, re-inject uh, the heat within the, the industrial system or produce electricity uh, if I understand uh, well how you do it. So, um, I mean, what is the energy required to load that unit uh, as well? I mean, are you like how much is lost into the into the into the process? I mean, if you can help us like uh, visualizing this whole process uh, and we're on a podcast, so it's easier to really understand step by step. Uh, and then maybe we can take a, a use case of one of your current uh, pilot projects. Uh, that's going to be even easier for uh, for them to to understand. Yeah. Um so let's take a look at those both use cases I just mentioned, right? We do have two different heat sources, but one application which is heat for industrial processes. No, not, not mm -hmm. talking about electricity to electricity now, uh, but just for heat applications on the customer side. We do have waste heat recovery and we do have electrification of heat. In terms of waste heat recovery, the easiest thing we could do is using an existing waste heat stream, so a flue gas line, which is already existing on customer side, and integrate our storage more or less into this flue gas line. It's done by a bypass, of course, but it's an integration into the flue gas line so that the flue gas directly goes through our storage. Our storage materials absorbs the heat, then we, we shut it down and release the heat by blowing cold air through the storage, taking the heat out of the storage and going to the application. That's the easiest way. Um, and then you can talk about efficiencies like 96, 97% or even more. Um, from heat to heat, though there are only few losses. Um, 
could be also quite complicated because you have a lot of pollution in the flue gas, a lot of dust in your flue gas, which will clog the storage device itself. So you have to think about heat exchanger in between, which will lower the efficiency, but still you would be higher than 95% of efficiency in, in this process, um, especially if you stay at heat in the upstream application itself. If you talk about electrification, it's also pretty interesting because uh, converting electricity to heat still does have an efficiency of 99 to, uh, 98 to 99%, right? Only losses of 1 to 2% uh, for this electrification step. Uh, so we end up somewhere between 94, 96, 97% of efficient thermal efficiency of the whole system, which is really, uh, really pretty, pretty good. Um, if we think about electrification, so storing uh, electricity in terms of heat and releasing electricity, we do have the bottleneck today that the electricity generation uh, just have a maximum efficiency of 45, 46, 47% if you have a large scale steam turbine. If you use an ORC, it might be 15 to 20%, sterling like 10%. So that's the bottleneck uh, in electrifying heat um, again. But, um, and that's how we look and, on it, and also utilities start looking on it. Um, it depends a little bit on the time scale, right? If you look at a short term time scale and you say, I have to invest in a power to heat system, I have to invest in a thermal storage, I have to invest in a turbine, nobody would do it because uh, if, if payback time should be five years, no way to go. But if you think about such a system being a kind of power plant and the service life of a typical power plant is 30, 40, 50 years, and you just take into account 20, 25 years of service life, then you've got an interesting use case, even if there is the bottleneck of 45% efficiency of the turbine. Uh, we have seen it in a couple of studies uh, with, with DEAC in Germany, with AGL, we just uh, executed in, in Australia, um, that the, the levelized cost of storage, so how much does the energy in the storage cost when it's discharged, is better than lithium batteries. Um, why? Because you have to replace the lithium batteries at least two times over the service life of 20 to 30 years. So it's the capex is just exploding, while our mm -hmm. system will still be under operation over this time and from some time on they will, will earn money. So electrification, um, it's quite a positive thing. We, we see it in, uh, not in the short term, but in mid term, like five to 10 years, uh, first projects coming out. So double clicking a little bit on the, uh, I would say inside of the, or the, the heart of the, of the block uh, in itself. Um, yeah. Could you help us to visualize a little bit like how does it look like inside? I mean, I saw some videos on your on your website. It looks like there is yeah. like those, uh, uh, you know, the, the same, I would say, stones that you use for like pizza oven. If I uh, go on the easy way for everybody. Uh, but how, do, how does it work? I mean, like um, what are the, the this? And you mentioned also those upcycling materials, those little balls uh, that you guys put inside. I mean, where do you source them? Uh, what are the logistics uh, required and constraints uh, behind that? Um, help us to visualize this secret sauce that you have there. Mm -hmm. um, try to make it not that complex. Uh, what was our approach? First of all, to develop a new type of storage material. I mean, there are a lot of people out saying, you don't have to develop something new because it's already existing in the market. That's true, but we are convinced that we cannot solve the problems of the future with the technologies of the last century. So we have to move on, we have to take it to the next level. And that's what we try to do also with the storage material beneath the whole storage system itself. 
Um, our approach to the storage material was basically to say sustainability, it's very important for us, for not only for the company itself, but for the whole storage system we offer to the market. Um, and that's why we try to take back to circular economy as much as possible material, which are usually put on dump or disposal sites, right? That's why we took a look strongly what is put over there. Yield slack, for example, that's one, one of the major components in our system. And there's another aspect with a technical one. Steel slack, um, it's available worldwide. We do have more than 400 steel plants worldwide producing exactly this type of slack that we are using and this for 30, 40 years. So there's no supply chain issue, uh, even if we would build a production in China or Australia or Brazil or well else. All over the world, there are those types of, um, of steel slack available. And as I said, deposited for at least 20, 30 years. So enough available also for the future. Um, no issue about that. But the steel slack does have a good heat capacity, but a worse heat conductivity. What does it mean? Um, it if, if this would be a crane, a steel slack pallet, and I heat it up from the surface, it takes quite a long time that the heat penetrates into the core of the storage, uh, of the material itself. And this is totally brutal for technical applications because you have to charge fast and you have to discharge fast. The customer cannot wait for half an hour till your system starts discharging. It needs to be done within seconds or even within low minute range. Um, that's why we said we have to increase the conductivity mm -hmm. um, for the whole system. We have this technical approach to have a, an option to tailor the storage material. And that's why we combine those um, recycling material, upcycling materials with a special type of binder. And now we are able to control, do we want to have better capacity? Do we want to have better conductivity? What is the best ratio for which application? And that's just the start behind the materials, um, a bit behind the material designs. And having those, um, try to find a picture, try, try to imagine uh, such a pallet. It looks, it looks with 20 millimeter, 40 millimeter pallets that we use. Um, it's a little bit like a swamp. So the structure of the swamp, it's the binder and the hole in the swamp, these are the capacity fillers, the slack, for example. And then you can imagine that you have heat transport waste deeply into the core of, this, of these pellets. And it's why we can heat it very fast and cool it down very fast and react to any technical, um, any technical um, requirements you do have. Mm -hmm. So this, this is the material. Um, using pellets, we do have a high surface and usually the surface is exactly the component which is used for the heat transfer in between the storage material and the heat transfer media like hot air, like flue gases. Uh, so it's also important to have a huge uh, surface area and that's what we are having. And then you do a quite smart combination inside the storage containment itself. Uh, so there's a lot IP in that, uh, so I couldn't, uh, cannot uh, figure out the details of this. <laughs> Uh, a lot of things more that are coming. But at the end, our storage is an outer shell. We do have um, a static system that is um, which, which takes the whole static load. We do have the insulation. We do have our, st uh, our storage material. We did not integrate any moving parts. There's no flap, there's no valve, there's no compressor, nothing. It's just the storage. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I believe for the, the maintenance and the, the lifespan of it, it's uh, definitely a, a big advantage. Do you have any idea about like the, the lifespan of uh, uh, those, those components and those like little like steel slag balls? Yeah. I mean, like, do you estimate that they need to be changed or replaced or refilled every five years, 10 years? Or is it something that in theory could uh, last no. forever? 
So we, we, yeah, what would be nice, it lasts forever. I mean, if you take a look on our website, I think there's infinite lifespan written somewhere and could be infinite, if it depends on how you define infinite uh, at the end. And we, we have tested our system for 15,000 cycles, so charging and discharging, which took, mm -hmm. took us all a, a bit of time uh, of our lifespan. But we wanted to have this cycle testing because uh, if you just counter-calculate one cycle each day, 15,000 cycles, these are nearly 40 years of service life. And that's what the storage system is made for. As we did not integrate, as I said, any components to the storage, all things like blowers, fans, like uh, heat exchangers, are outside the storage, so they can have their standard maintenance as industry uh, is used to it. Uh, so really no constraint for a long service life. Okay. Uh, in terms of um, regulation and certification, anything that you guys had to go through or like um, applying for or still waiting to get, or it was like something very uh, straightforward and, uh, and, you know, ability to, to collaborate with any different plants or, you know, industrial uh, potential clients? Yeah, usually we are applying all the worldwide standards that are available. So typical DIN, EN, ISO norms, uh, typical mechanical engineering standards, material standards. So we do not invent anything new, especially at the interface uh, to our customers. Uh, that's quite, and it's fully standardized. So really mm -hmm. there is nothing new we invent. Um, there are a lot of industrial specific standards or site specific standards. Um, that's the most uh, worth point to discuss with the customers what internal standards do you have so that we can comply also to them but th that's that's absolutely no issue that's a proper engineering um, uh, we are based on ISO 901 so also do have this uh, certification system on pl in place that's not a problem at all and and just um, the last question on more like the, the technical side like I mean each module what's the capacity that you can uh, in theory in terms of uh, that you can have and like how many of them would you be able to in theory aggregate together is it infinite or there's like a, uh, you're reaching like a megawatt terawatt or what's the yeah. we, we we are starting in the megawatt hour scale uh, so 20 foot storage I mean, six, six meters in length, 2.3 in width and 2.4 in height, uh, including the static structure, including the insulation, uh, still does have a capacity of 8 to 10 megawatt hours uh, thermal at 1000 degrees C. It's also at 800 degrees C, it's a little bit higher at 1200 degrees C, but it's the, let's say, the average capacity we are calculating with. And that's just one storage module. And the largest storage we designed for a customer at the moment based on those modules is 7.6 gigawatt hour of storage capacity. Um, a feasibility study which is going on right now. Um, what is very special about our approach, we never would build one single 7.5 gigawatt hour storage unit. We always would modularize them in smaller units mm -hmm. because we see a lot of technical advantages if we do that. Um, first, first of all, if there's just one unit and it fails, the whole system stands still and it costs a lot of money to take it in, in, into operations again. Mm -hmm. uh, the second point is if you would only have a partial charge of the storage, you would have a massive degradation of the temperature inside this large vessel means you might not have the, the temperature necessary for the upstream application. The third point is, uh, if you build just one large containment, you only can charge or discharge. You cannot decide between charging, discharging, bypassing, or what else is needed to operate the system. That's why we modularize it to smaller scales. 
Um, for example, I think this the large the, the seven point five gigawatt hour system consists of fifty fifty different modules, uh, smaller ones. Um, also, with an additional benefit, you do have fifty different charging and fifty different discharging systems. Sounds very complex right now and very expensive, but it isn't because uh, those are out of the shelf components. There is not a supplier which has to design a power to heat system for seven point five gigawatt hours uh, charging. Right, we're using what's existing in the market, uh, so it's cheaper, and you have a kind of internal redundancy. It means if one system fails, there are still 49 under operation. Uh, mm -hmm. The same for maintenance. So you can take out one system for maintenance purposes and keep the other ones under operation, which means you increase availability, reliability, um, and the uptime of the whole system. So that's that's our basic approach to it. Yeah, and, and I think it's very interesting this uh, you know compartment block approach where uh, definitely helps to. Uh, to avoid the whole system shutdown. Uh, la last question on technical side before going into the, the business model. Um, just out of curiosity, I mean, when you fully charge at uh, 1000 uh, Celsius heat mm -hmm. inside of nice. your, uh, your block, how long that um, uh, heat lasts uh, and yeah. what is required to maintain the heat or how long, I mean, how long do you have before like it, you start to see a drop in terms of like because I yeah. guess the heat is not forever stored uh, in there until no. you need it. No, no. It's, it's definitely not a seasonal storage, so you cannot store it for months at the end. Um, but you can store it, uh, the maximum we calculated was for two weeks in a large-scale system, which is already pretty good for a thermal energy storage system. Usually a storage device like Craftblock or also another storage device is used to store heat between a few hours and a few days. And that's the typical cycle of heat. Uh, we do a quite close um, and intense um, analysis of the needed insulation. So uh, this is pretty much a lot of engineering work, but we want to deliver maximum capacity to the customer and not a standardized insulation so an insulation, if I design it for 1000 degrees C, 72 hours then still time, does not make sense if my, if my customers uh, just has 500 degrees C and needs to cycle it within six hours. I lose a lot of storage capacity. That's why the insulation design is done project by project at the moment. Okay. Thank you so much. So uh, what are the current and expected economics of, uh, of craft blocks? I mean, how much does it cost to, to use your storage system versus, uh, you know, other alternative for, for heat or chemical-based solution uh, on the more electricity uh, spectrum, I believe? I mean, um, maybe can you tell us a bit the, the business model that uh, you guys have, uh, eventually some, some clients that uh, you already uh, onboarded uh, and the, the future projection? Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, of course. So we, we do have... Um... Uh, again, coming back to the split of the system, saying waste heat recovery on one hand, electrification on the other hand, we are active in both uh, sectors. Uh, the first customer in waste heat recycling was in ceramics industry. So this company is producing grinding wheels, but not uh, the small ones for the UESL market. It's more the large ones for steam turbines and a lot of large scale equipment. Um, they are the third largest uh, grinding wheel producer in Europe at the moment. Uh, and there we do just a simple waste heat recovery. So taking the heat out of the flue gas when the oven uh, is heated up uh, and heating. Um, and we cycle the heat back to the oven when it's ramped up the day after or the uh, two days after. So it's a batch driven per, uh, process. So it's a perfect uh, application for this. 
Um, this is Comet in, in uh, Germany. Uh, we do have another customer in or two more customers in steel industry. Um, unfortunately, I cannot name one of them yet, but uh, I think there will be a press release shortly uh, where we are this uh, we designed and executing a system for uh, waste heat recovery at the Sintercooler station, which is also a pretty good application. A lot of energy is just put in the atmosphere uh, in this process. Uh, and there's a third one in Germany uh, where we install a um, um, a thermal energy storage system where we cover the flare gas heat, which is at Saarstahl in, in Saarland at us. So there are already good, a lot of good experiences, a lot of more customers approaching at the moment. Electrification, in, especially in Germany and Europe, that's um, yeah, the top tier application at the moment for thermal energy storages as well. I think the largest system probably is quite well known, which is the one for PepsiCo and Enico in the Netherlands. In this case, we replace a gas-fired boiler uh, in the final stage, a 25 megawatt gas-fired boiler uh, against an electrified system. They are using the gas-fired boiler to produce the laced potato chips just to fry it at the end. Uh, and in future, so next year, they will use our storage system to produce the laced potato chips and it's fully electrified. Uh, means our system charges for roughly four hours every day uh, when the electricity price are very low, uh, but is able to discharge 24-7 to the application on PepsiCo side, which means uh, this process line will be decarbonized by 98% uh, in one single step. And uh, that's quite brilliant. And a couple of more customers like this, I think we will see within the next months when we are able to talk more about it. <laughs> Definitely, but thank you so much for already unveiling uh, all of that. So I would ask you then, what are I mean? How are you guys planning to to scale your operation? I mean, what are the, the steps that you you see to achieve it? I mean, what needs to happen? What's next for Craftblock? Um, I think next next for Craftblock is uh, the reaction of the market mainly. Um, so usually we are saying, and it's 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 really not kidding. It's my conviction uh, that all of the players with thermal energy storage are meeting the same customers because there are only a couple of early movers of early adopters um, today. Um, but there are a lot of followers already waiting till the first real live commercial scale applications are under operation. Uh, we can see it also in our inbound requests from, from various industries, especially also from the one from the food industry uh, at the moment. Um, that's just, let's say, the limiting factor as soon as, for example, the PepsiCo uh, plant is under operation. There, and not to say there is no limit, there will be limits, of course, um, but then uh, the market can grow much, much faster. And I think the reliability also for, for our competition is much better if there are larger scaled um, commercial systems in the market and shown its reality. It can be done and we can decarbonize with those systems. But that's, that's our main... Um, mainstream where we have a look on uh, scaling. Yes, uh, it's an interesting fact. We already have um, built our own production lines in Germany. Uh, so we are able to produce up to 1.5 gigawatt hour of storage material every year with one single production line. Um, the same at least for the uh, thermal energy storage device itself. So the different modules, so pretty well equipped for the next phase that is approaching. Uh, and we developed a quite um, interesting scaling com uh, concept, which means that we are teaming up at the moment with a lot of players in the market, because our aim is not to build all the storage units in Germany and ship it to Australia, for example, 
but to be very close uh, to the site, the storage should be installed in future also in terms of um, trans transport costs, transport emissions, things like that. But also having in mind, and it might sound a little bit strange right now, is, is the social impact, right? If you can use utilize workforce quite close to the spot, uh, we also can have an impact over there, not just, let's say, earning money and do not having additional impact to the, the carbon dioxide um, emissions. Exactly. What's your uh, personal opinion on the, on the climate crisis? I mean, what would you say to people who feel uh, overwhelmed and demoralized by all the visible consequences that uh, we're already uh, having today? Um, I mean, as I always ask, are we doomed? <laughs> Uh, that, that, that's a good question. No, um, I, per personally, I'm a quite optimistic guy. Whereas I do have a little bit the, the optimism definition um, mixture out of uh, sightings and uh, Douglas Adams um, saying um, my definition of, the, of optimism is jumping from a cliff and not trying to hit the bottom at the end means learning to fly. And I think uh, at least on the technical side, we do have all the options to fight the climate change but they have to be used in a very broad way. So we need a technology openness to, to introduce all those options to the market. We cannot, we cannot revert the defined uh, kipping points uh, as it is today, but uh, passing this kipping point also does not mean the worst case will happen. It will happen a little bit faster, but not finally. We still have a chance uh, to, 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 to convert the system. Um, that's one of the points. The other point is, of course, um, people do not like to change their status as it is independently what it is whether it's wealth whether it's uh, where they live whatever or their, their personal habits uh, but i think they are able to do it and once if they learn to do this it will also have a massive impact so i know definitely mankind will survive so in one way or the other way i'm, I'm quite positive about that and maybe on Mars, we'll see. Uh, but <laughs> hopefully on Earth as well. Let, let's let's back on SpaceX and Mars. Let's see. <laughs> exactly, Elon. Here we go. Now, thank you so much. How how can uh, all listeners of you know funders, investors, experts around the world listening to the show can uh, can help you? Um, first of all, it's very very important to spread a word about solutions like ours. Right, because only if it's known, people want to learn more about it and want to use it. So uh, we have seen it, uh, especially in, in Europe uh, with the Ukraine war and the gas crisis we had, that uh, industry suddenly start thinking about electrification and getting rid of the gas. Uh, and they learned a lot about thermal energy storage systems as well, because they are quite efficient way to use electricity uh, in order to produce uh, process heat. Um, increasing our network is always very, very important to us. Um, because it takes quite a long while till a customer starts to order the process. So you have first to build trust, you have to talk to them, find a solution for them. Then it's a new technology, they have to think about their budgets uh, to build, build the budgets. So also the, the, the network is uh, pretty, um, pretty important to us. Uh, might also sound strange, also network to potential competitors or new startups in this sector uh, is very important to us. Just give you an example why. Our solution, for example, is not dedicated for the low temperature range, like 60 degrees C, 80 degrees C, 100 degrees C. It's not dedicated um, um, for replacing uh, molten salt, for example, in special applications, because molten salt delivers a steady temperature interval 
for a longer period in time can be done by a sensible storage, but it's harder to do. So we usually try to team up with those companies or say to the customer, look, there's a better solution over there. It's important to have the impact at the end to reduce the carbon dioxide, whatever means it takes. Any question that I did not ask you that I should have for this uh, first part of the interview? No, actually, I cannot remember what whatever I talked about, but no. I don't <laughs> <know>. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much, Martin, for your uh, for your time, your incredible insights on the industry. Um, I'm so excited to see so many brilliant people like you putting so much time and effort uh, and willingness to uh, to create a change for a better world. So thank you so much for joining the show today. Thank you so much for being here. Guillaume. Was really fun. Thanks again for joining us on the Tech Footnote podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show. Stay tuned next week for more climate tech insights. In the meantime, head on over to our webpage at startupbasecamp.org, where we have lots more insights and resources for anyone wanting to get involved in climate tech. If you find our resources useful, please consider donating to support our small self-funded team. Don't forget to subscribe and share with your friends. And see you next time.